This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The summer travel season is just about here. People are anxious to get away after two years of the pandemic. And the bottlenecks at the airport are epic. Just this weekend, my brother's flight was 90 minutes late because of this. The last time I traveled back in April, there was a 45-minute wait to get through security and another 45 minutes to get a checked bag. Other people have had delays that are worse. So why is it so backed up? Did no one in charge foresee that travel would pick up? The federal transport minister, Omar Al-Ghabra, certainly is not accepting responsibility. As a matter of fact, he blamed the passengers. He blamed passengers for being, quote, out of practice. Even so... The latest stats that I saw, and I want to check with our next guest that they are accurate, says say that the number of passengers is at 70% of pre-pandemic loads. Staffing is at 90%. So according to that map, things should be moving normally, though everything that I'm seeing, the blame is being put on the security process and security staffing. So I would very much like to hear from the audience on your experiences with this or what you think of it. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to begin with David Flowers, president of District 140 at the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. David, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby. Thanks for having me on. So you represent security workers as well? Yes, we represent security workers uh, in the province of British Columbia and in Ontario uh, as well, too. Yep. And so where do you say the bottleneck is? Is it in, in security or is it elsewhere as well? Uh, well, I'm sure that there, there's you know, problems all over the place. Uh, I, from what we've heard, there's issues all over. But uh, the, the lineups that the passengers are encountering right now are uh, to do with the, uh, the backlog at the screening uh, stations to get through uh, security. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like I said, there's also backlogs. If you are uh, uh, unfortunate enough to check a bag, that can take a long time, too. Right. Uh, so, uh, and is it just a matter of not enough staff, staff that are not trained? I mean, uh, what about that, that number that I cited? Are staffing levels at 90% pre-pandemic? Well, that's interesting. And I'll, I'll say this, Libby. First off, this, this isn't created by our members. And I, we ask the public to be patient. This is a, it's not a negotiation issue. You know, this is an issue what we see as a, a problem in mismanagement of human resources by CASA and its third parties in, in preparing for this. Um, I heard that stat. Um, I can't comment specifically on the stat that the, uh, the minister said, but I do find it interesting that only two weeks ago, both on the minister, uh, minister's websites and CASA's websites, 
they said they're not immune to retention and staffing issues. And somehow one week later, um, they're back out in the public explaining that it's the general public's fault and that these uh, staffing numbers are back to what they are. Um, they're hiring, and yes, that's true, they're, they're rushing to get people hired, but this takes weeks and weeks to, uh, to get people up to properly trained and qualified. So what we're seeing they're doing right now is they're only uh, limited training uh, so that they can expedite this process and get people back out onto the floor. But what that does is it, it puts more strain on the uh, fully qualified people, and the fully qualified people are being forced to have frequent schedule changes. So I'm not really sure where they got those numbers, but I can definitely tell you if our members were allowed to speak, they'd tell you the real truth. Okay, so you're saying that it is mismanagement. Perhaps they're hiring, but there are bottlenecks with training. And uh, do do hired people, what kind of security clearance do they need? Yeah, they need uh, they need full security clearance, uh, Transport, uh, Transport Canada security clearance. So, again, that takes weeks and weeks, and that's what we're seeing in the in the minimal training they're trying to put through right now. They're, they're just doing the expedited training and then filling holes. And to no member, to, to, to not these members' fault, that is just uh, creating a further strain on the people that uh, did return after the pandemic and stayed there during the pandemic. Uh, by the way, what do you think of the minister's response saying that the passengers are, quote, out of practice? Well, I mean, here's what I'll say to that, okay? Uh, we're not alone in, in travel and, and in, the, in the pickup of travel post-pandemic. Um, that's uh, being seen all around the world. So uh, I guess if I was to ask uh, a comment back to the minister, I would ask him uh, how that's uh, only taking place in Canada. If you look south of the border and if you look at the international airports, they're having uh, rebounding to pre-pandemic travel levels, uh, yet you don't see the the issue in uh, the bottlenecks at their securities. I mean, there's always lineups, but not like we're seeing across Canada. So is the minister suggesting that only Canadians are the ones that are out of practice in traveling? Uh, I'm confused by that because there's nowhere else uh, around the world are you seeing that problem. Well, there are bottlenecks uh, all around the world when it comes to travel. Uh, Do you think any of it are uh, certain kinds of uh, COVID checks or restrictions still? Uh, yeah, I'm sure that that plays into it. And I didn't for a second suggest, Libby, that there's no bottlenecks. I'm saying you're always going to have uh, issues with travel, and there's always a recommendation to get there early. But what we're seeing here across the airports in Canada, and we represent members in, in British Columbia in in Ontario, but we're also hearing about it from the airports that we don't represent, uh, similar issues, as these are third parties as well from CASA. Uh, so I, I, I haven't seen it uh, where uh, around the world they're uh, dealing with the same kind of issues we're dealing with. What about th- this affects other workers? They're, they're saying, you know, people uh, like flight attendants that mm. uh, who are paid for their time in the air, and mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, but we're waiting around the airport for hours at a time, and we're not being paid for that. Yeah, Libby, I, I'd have trouble commenting on that. Those aren't our members, and those aren't uh, things that we negotiate for our members. But uh, I've heard those same issues, and yeah, that's... Uh, that's one problem leading from this, that the, the more that flights get delayed, the, the more issues you're going to have with flight crews and, and staff on the aircraft uh, as they're limited to the amount of hours they can be in the sky. So um, you, you'll even see even further delays if they go past the hours they're allowed to 
and then they have to find new crews. So, yeah, that's a, that's an issue in itself, but not something I can really comment on. It's a, not my members. Okay, and uh, the other thing I've seen about your members is that there may be strikes. They want better pay. They want better working conditions. What are you looking for? Uh, okay, so just, just for the record, um, the, the strike comments are not from our members. That was um, out of some airports, uh, I believe, in Alberta, uh, where they're in contract goats right now. Those aren't uh, members that are represented by us. Uh, but... Uh, I can tell you with our own members, uh, some of the main issues are pay, yes. Um, in, this, in this market right now, especially air transportation, we've seen all the other employers identify uh, retention issues and attraction issues and make the necessary changes to try and retain and attract. Um, but these agencies have pretended that it didn't exist until now, and, and quite frankly, it's a, it's a little too late to try and fix this with the amount of time it takes to get these members up and going. Um, for the bases that are in contract negotiations, I'm sure they're dealing with the the same issues. Uh, they're dealing with uh, a, an overstressed work staff that is being asked to do a lot more for less. They they're having to give up uh, breaks and lunch breaks. Uh, washroom breaks are being limited. Um, management are, are uh, mistreating their members, and and we're seeing health and safety issues being uh, being addressed. So. Um, I'm sure that the the bases that are in contract negotiations uh, are are, uh, are bringing these issues up, and and that could uh, that could have an issue in their uh, in their tentative agreements. Uh, uh, I've also seen predictions that this gets worse before it gets better. Uh, things will get even busier as we mm-hmm. get closer in to the summer. What should we be preparing us for ourselves well, for? I can tell you the general public should be prepared that this will uh, last quite a while because, as the minister said uh, in his comments a week or a week and a half ago, that there is no magic wand to fix this, and the minister is not lying. There's no magic wand you can wave and have fully skilled and qualified people up and running. It takes weeks and weeks to to get them prepared and get them trained and get them qualified with Transport Canada. Um, so that could take a while, and we've been looking at the... Uh, the travel numbers upcoming for July and August, and those numbers go significantly up from where we are right now. So if you look at the lineups right now and, and you understand that there uh, is no quick fix to getting this uh, this this issue fixed, um, one can only assume that this is only going to get worse over the summer than, uh, than better, and, and less, um, this is... Unless this is something that they uh, they actively work on, uh, we're going to have uh, real issues. Okay, David Flowers, uh, that doesn't sound very encouraging, but thank you so much for your time. Libby, I just ask yeah. that the general public be, uh, be be patient with our members. They're doing be- their best to get everybody through safely. Okay, we get that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we are taking another break, and when we come back, we're going to get the passenger's point of view on all of this with Gabor Lukash when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now, what about the passenger's take 
on all of this, and they are and their rights. Again, I would like to hear from you with your experiences. Is all this talk about these hassles at the airport, is that going to stop you from traveling, or are you going to take a deep breath and and take the advice of our previous guest, David Flowers, and uh, pack your patience? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Dr. Gabor Lukash, founder and president of Air Passenger Rights. Hi, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. So uh, what are your thoughts on these huge bottlenecks we're hearing about, particularly in security? You know, this is one of the few situations where I have to say it is not the airline's fault as a first message to passengers. It sounds like it is the fault of CATSA and of various um, governmental bodies that are supposed to ensure that uh, the flow of passengers is smooth at the airports. I don't accept the Minister of Transport's theory that somehow the passengers are responsible for it. Yeah, so, I love that. Pa- passengers are passengers. They, they, I don't think that passengers are now taking much longer than they have been taking before. I, I haven't seen any, any clear evidence of that. And uh, furthermore, um, this was known. This is nothing new. Travel was already happening last year. If you have taken the time of how much time it takes for, say, a thousand passengers to go to security last year, if even if the minister was correct that now it takes more time, the increase supposedly caused by COVID would have been long known before. So we are talking about things that are predictable, would have been known well in advance, and the government, cats and other bodies chose not to act on it. So what I advise passengers is that if they incur losses as a result, they should sue CATSA. <laughs> they have, uh, uh, it, CATSA is not like a, in a socialist country where, you know, they can, they can just uh, decide how much service they provide. It's a, it's a service for something that passengers have paid for. And if they create problems, if they cause passengers to miss their flights, then they are liable like any other corporation, any other company. Uh, have you heard of anybody trying to sue CATSA? I mean, it sounds like uh, something that would be costly, time-consuming, and uh, beating your head against the wall, frankly. Not at all. Not at all. It's, it's, you know, there's this whole call misconception that, that suing is really complicated, or it, it, it may be nerve, nerve-wracking for sure, but uh, it, suing CATSA is not any more difficult than suing an airline in small claims court. It's, it's, it, the CATSA, just because its government doesn't have some kind of special right to a special um, treatment of some sort. Uh, and uh, I, I did hear in different contexts, more in context of, of um, mobilities and disabilities, but I did hear about people who did sue CATSA, and uh, eventually they had a good settlement, as I understand. So um, they also sued airlines in that case. Um, but I, I, I don't think that, that we should mystify this. Yes, suing is stressful for most people. It can be um, time-consuming to some degree. But just look at the flip side. What else can you do if you want things to change? There's no way to go to a judge and, and get an order that has to provide a better service. What you can do is to make sure that if they provide such a dismal service that causes lots of problems for passengers, it will not be you, the passenger, holding the bag. And by 
creating some financial accountability, you create pressure to improve the service. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you have anything, any advice that might be a little more immediate for those of us who are planning to travel in the next few months? It is hard to, to give immediate advice when, when really there is a bottleneck and there is a, a you know, body which controls really the flow and they control how many, how many security uh, uh, personnel they hire, they have, they train. Uh, Arriving at the airport as early as possible is always a sound advice, but there's only so much that you can do. You should certainly take photographs of what's happening, videos, so that you will have evidence that it was not you who arrived at the last minute and you were tardy. Also, if you missed your connection, I would try to speak to the airline because generally if you are already traveling and just missed a connecting flight, they should be rebooking you on the next available flight. But in terms of hotel and meals, you would be on your own. And that's why I suggest that you should be looking for reimbursement from CASA. They are the, the, the entity which is causing the problem. Uh, it, it is sad, but what my main message to the public is, if you don't like it, do something about it. And what you can do something about it other than the court of public opinion is going to the court of law and holding those who cause this suffering for you accountable. If you're not willing to do it, then just keep suffering. Well, you know what? I'm probably going to do a, a show on this in the coming days because what I am finding, it's not just at the airport. Every single area where there is supposed to be customer service in almost every single area, there is not. And if you don't like it, you can talk to a bot. But there's also, uh, when you're dealing with larger entities, there is no human being. Zero. Uh, and I don't know, uh, some of them, uh, I think, I know there are labor issues. Some uh, businesses have had a very hard time and are, have suffered through the pandemic. But others, I think, uh, are just, you know, trying to uh, maximize the money by cutting back on staff. Uh, that's, that's, that's quite true. And uh, when we talk about a business, um, the business have to take into account the cost on passengers' time. So it's very nice that they think they can save money by having less employees, but that is one more reason why I think it's so vital to, to go through the effort of holding airlines accountable and holding cats accountable in this case, because that way the, the cost saving that they may perceive by having less employees is have, they have to weigh them against the cost of the litigation, the cost of compensation they have to pay out to passengers. So when you think about taking, say, CASA to small claims court or even to teaming up with other passengers and taking them to superior court, you should not feel bad about it, but you should think about it as a way of doing a public service to ensure that this type of dismal service does not continue. Okay. What it is going to continue until sufficient many people take things to court and they do something about it. It is not going to disappear on its own. What about some of the other issues that we have seen uh, through, like the refunds? Is, is that kind of sorted out? It is not sorted out entirely. There are still many people who have not received their refunds or just now maybe seeing uh, some money, in particular from WestJet. These people are still owed interest on the money that airlines have stolen and have been holding on to for a long time. Um, there is also the aspect of the... Uh, lack of transparency and the close relationship between the uh, 
government, um, Transport Canada and Canadian Transportation Agency and the airlines that caused the whole uh, vouchers and refunds saga to begin with. Uh, we are continuing to fight it in federal court of appeal. And unfortunately, as you would expect, the uh, government is trying to keep away documents from the court. They don't want to really disclose everything that they have been doing because quite likely already what we are seeing now is uh, troublesome interference and, and uh, confidential letters being sent uh, when the airlines are saying, oh, w- here's our wish list of what, what we want you to do. And the government, Canadian Transportation Agency seems to be quite obediently just doing as they're being told by the airlines. So um, that's part and parcel of the problem. The, the problem is not just the refunds. The problem is the whole ecosystem, which is b- built on creating the appearance that passengers are being protected. But in reality, the government is acting to protect the airline's private business interests. Well, the the argument always is that we need the airlines and airlines uh, in the past when there's been a lot of competition, we've seen airlines go broke. Uh, and we don't want that. We need uh, we need airlines working. What do you say to that explanation, excuse, or whatever you want to call it? Well, look, we we, we also need banks. We also need you know we, we need cab drivers, but we certainly don't need cab drivers to rob their passengers. So we don't need banks to steal their customers' money. We don't need supermarkets that put spoiled food on the shelves. So. Yes, we need airlines, but if an airline cannot operate within the, the boundaries, the confines of a reasonable uh, legal system, and, and I mean, what we're, you know, refunds was really a common sense thing. If you didn't travel for no fault of your own, you have to get back your money. That's not a special right. That's, that's, that's really basic legal principle. If an airline cannot operate within those confines, then they have no right to operate. That, that, then that airline should go out of business and perhaps another airline should take its place, which is, which does have a business model which can remain profitable without ripping off passengers. Okay, yeah, but where would we be if Air Canada went under with those refunds? If they would, I mean, that's what they said might happen. Well, they they they, they made some completely uh, unsubstantiated claims. They had lots, of, they had billions of dollars that they were sitting on, and if Air Canada goes under. It doesn't mean that the people or the planes, anything disappears. It means that shareholders may be losing some money, but the knowledge, the, the how-to, the pilots who are trained, the flight attendants who are trained, that, that remains in Canada. That doesn't disappear. So uh, it's a bit like the phoenix from the ashes of the airline may go bankrupt. There can be a new airline created very, very quickly if there's really demand for, for, for air transportation. And ultimately, it is the shareholders that have to hold the bag in such situation. And that's what really happened. When you look at what happened in Germany, for example, uh, the shareholders had to take a major haircut. Uh, and that's, that's what business is about. You cannot expect the, the uh, shareholders to take the profit, but the public to take the losses, which is what the Canadian model has been. Running a business means that you both take the gains and the losses. And when there's losses, it means big losses. Shareholders may be out of lots of money. That's life. But the passengers are not investors. They are just customers. They are not lenders. So uh, in closing, what do you want to tell people about what to expect this summer? I think passengers should expect a lot of problems. And, and they should uh, be ready to fight for a better, better air transportation. Just remember you get not what you pay for, what you're willing to put up with. 
If you're willing to put up with this, this is going to continue to be a problem. If you are willing to put some time, energy, effort, money into fighting back now, next year we're going to get a better service. Okay. Gabor Lukash, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. And as I've been saying, I will be at the debate with producer Justin Eacock, and I'll let you know what I think tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and tonight we get to see the Ontario leaders debate. It's been billed as the most important event in the June election campaign, and it is certainly going to be the last time we see all the party leaders together so we can stack them up. But uh, is it going to create any heat or any light that we have to see? We heard last week about the CARP-5, and so I am going to ask the squad, how should we measure what we will hear later against that benchmark? Is it going to be a benchmark? Meantime, a group of very prominent former leaders in the sector have come out with their own blueprint on how to fix health care. Is that really a good idea now that we're thinking about it, or are we going to end up with too much information, too hard to sort out? Um, But first, let's begin with the passing of someone whose story informed and inspired the Zoomer generation's approach to justice. Yesterday, David Milgard, jailed for 23 years for a murder he did not commit, passed away at the age of 69. And uh, it uh, sparked a whole uh, kind of an advocacy for wrongfully convicted people. So let me give the numbers out. We want to hear from the audience, too, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hello, so, everyone. David, let's uh, begin with you. Uh, what about the passing of David Milgard? What uh, What are your thoughts? I'm. I'm. Uh, it's a tragedy that somebody who lived to 69 spent 21 of those years in jail for a crime he did not commit. So I think that the, the tragedy of his life, in spite of the fact that he got 10 million in compensation, there's no compensating for that. I think it was an important case in the use of uh, DNA evidence, the science advanced while he was in prison. He was able to prove his innocence and the guilty party was finally identified. There's still an unfinished business here, I just want to point out, which is also happening. There's a court case in the U.S. at this very moment. Can you sue a uh, individual prosecutor or officer for misconduct and get damages for a wrongful conviction, not just the state writing you a check and apologizing. And it'll be interesting to see whether that movement comes up here. Is your recourse for wrongful conviction 
can you uh, extract personal damages from uh, prosecutors or, or police who uh, behaved inappropriately, perhaps even illegally? And uh, I think uh, I'd like to see that uh, move forward, frankly. Okay, well, that's interesting. They uh, sue a lot more down there. They do, but maybe, maybe, maybe we should. Uh, you know, the, the behavior of the Crown in the Milgard case was reprehensible. Uh, Peter, what's your view? Well, um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of, uh, I, I hate the litigious society in, uh, down in the U.S., but, but David's point, uh, David raised an interesting point, because it, it seems that it wasn't just the justice system, it was the police who wanted to wrap this up quickly, get an arrest. It was, you know, um, lawyers who um, didn't share evidence, and it, it, it seems like judges didn't uh, follow the due process, and, and then, of course, the, uh, the it was behind the, you know, we didn't have the advances in scientific um, evidence to, to free him, but it seems like there was a lot going on there, and how you would pinpoint just who was responsible um, is, is would be difficult, but very interesting, because, you know, if someone, you know, if someone messes up, in any other field, they're directly responsible. It's, it's not the whole system that that's responsible. It's the person. And uh, here, David's saying, like, it's not the system, you know, that's responsible. There were certain bad actors in the system that should be investigated, and not only for not only for Melgard, but also for, uh, you know, who are some of the others? Key Paul Moran and, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Truscott, I think, and Donald Marshall, and, the, and and these all had sort of flaws in the procedure that should be looked in uh, more deeply than just saying the system failed them, you know. Okay, Bill, what about you? Well, for me, uh, I can recall with uh, Milgard uh, that it was kind of a wake-up uh, for me. I think to that point, I had pretty much considered that our police, our justice uh, system, our courts uh, operated extremely well. We could be comfortable that uh, they made good uh, decisions. And although there had been other instances of of uh, sub wrongs, this seemed to be the one that was most obvious that if the system had done what it should have done uh, more carefully, that the the evidence was right there. The uh, uh, the actual perpetrator's wife had come forward and said, "I think my husband uh, uh, did it." So for me, uh, having grown up on television uh, police shows where they're always where they're always right, this was a wake up call when I began to doubt whether or not the system is, was as good as we Canadians all hoped it would be. Well, let us turn now to health care, which purportedly is the biggest issue in this election campaign, though, honestly, I have to wonder. Uh, let's take a call from Robert in Toronto. Hello, Robert. Good afternoon, um, Libby. And uh... Yes, go ahead. You're on the air, Robert. Robert, did we lose you? Okay, we lost Robert. He wished us a good afternoon. So, uh, David, again, so if you look at polling, people say health care is the most important thing, but I don't know that they're actually going to vote on that. Well, I think they are and they aren't. I think that um, the parties are all smart enough to 
come forward waving the banner of health care and talk about it. I mean, no, no leader is going to say there's some other issue that, you know, I care about more and let's forget about health care. So they've all got to kind of bow at the altar of health care and come up with something. So it's there. But I, I'm not suggesting it's the only issue. And then depending on where you live and what you need and what you're happy with or unhappy with, I think, cost of living and, and, and the health of the economy, uh, even though the province uh, has a less ability to impact that than the feds do, I think that's going to be important. But looking at the CARP 5 and looking at tonight's debate, I think what we should be watching is what where is health care? I don't expect the whole debate to be about health care, but where is it in the scheme of things? Are they realistic? Do they sound like they know what to do or at least a few things to do? And are they serious about it? Peter, do you think people remember the carnage in long-term care during COVID? Uh, I just saw another report. Canada had the worst record of all the wealthy countries, hands down. And it seems like people have moved on. And it's interesting, over the weekend I was reading about the situation in the United States, you know, uh, they had a lot more deaths overall, so their percentage in nursing homes was smaller. But, uh, you know, it's like a lot of people seem to be taking the attitude, well, you know, they were old. Yeah, and, you know, that's an attitude, like, it's an easy attitude to take, but Looking at this report and some of the stark numbers, um, you know, in Canada, 88% of the deaths occurred in long-term care, and, in, and the next closest country was 66%. And it was, and that was Spain, which isn't, you know, had a, had a, a terrible uh, experience of COVID. So, you know, it, it's so uh, it's it's so appallingly um, evident in, in in this report that. Something is terribly wrong with the system, and it's not able to deal with with, with COVID or the next virus or or what, what whatever happens. And something has to be happening. And, and you know, if if our memory is that short term from you know basically last year to this year, um, that's a big worry because uh, you know unless we're just going to give up on the system altogether and, and and let it you know run it into the ground or whatever, something has to be done something big has to be done and uh you know just looking at uh, what the parties are offering i i don't think uh i don't think they're even taking it seriously enough bill i think that uh we're probably uh discovering that uh although uh carp and our leadership are extremely concerned about uh about health care and especially the issues that we have in the in the CARB five, that actually um, the the general public and the politicians are always focused on the most current thing, and the most current thing for them is financial security. It's uh, cost of living. It's even transportation and and uh, roads. And we're hearing this not just in Ontario, but right across across the the country that. Everybody agrees that the health issues are there, but it's almost like they're taking them for granted. I'm not sure whether that means they don't think they can be fixed. They don't think that governments are sincere about it, or they think it's going to take long to fix a system that's in such a horrible mess. So their current concerns are about today, and today's concern is is how 
they're how they're going to live and finance themselves uh, in the in the next uh, month. So I think perhaps the political parties do have the right uh, idea when they're uh, first of all they don't have good answers for health care. So what are they going to say? And secondly, financial concerns are more immediate with the voters uh, this year. Okay. Let's hear from uh, Robert. I think we have you now, Robert, in Toronto. Hello. Yes. Go ahead. Thank you so much, uh, Libby. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Yes. Well, with regard to the financial security issue, my point, and I started to say, was come June 3rd, will Ontarians show their OHIP card or their credit card when they go to their doctor's appointment? That, I think, is a vital part of the issue here when, when we're talking about the here and now of the rising cost of living. Well, that's an NDP it, campaign slogan. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't think anything's going to be changed by June the 3rd. So no, I appreciate that, but I mean, if Ford gets a majority, all the things that he's been doing to dismantle and defund health care and turn it over to privatization will be amplified. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's, uh, I don't think we're, that's getting to the heart of the matter of what has to be done for a fix. I think that's, uh, that's getting to uh, easy 30-second campaign slogans, to be honest. David? Well, I think that we're, we're, we're missing the boat here. And I think if we're going to go and talk about these 10 ways to fix the system from these experts is that the the issue of financial compensation and do you have to dip into your own pocket or does the government pay for it is not the same as who actually delivers right. the health care. So you could go to, for example, a privately owned, your GP is a privately owned business. So you could right. go to a provider of health care who charges a there fee. There is a lot of, a lot of, there are a lot of private companies, that, but it's a single payer system. Single payer. So the government payer. says, you laid out $1,000 for service X, here's your $1,000 back. So the principle of not being denied health care due to inability to pay, that's one topic. Does that mean that the payer, i.e. the government, has to also be the provider? And that's where we're running into problems because the government, which is very efficient at getting checks in the mail to people, is not that good at running the thing. And I think that's where the big debate's going to be over the next five, ten years is who delivers the actual services. But already we have a big mix of who delivers. Exactly. And in this, that's my point. this expert group, uh, which included Bob Bell, who is a former deputy minister under Kathleen Wynne, former CEO of Uni- University Health Network, and Golden, who ran the United Way, uh, among others, well, what they're saying is that they are totally against a two-tier health system, which is, you know, there are some people saying the only way to clear the backlog is is to have private health care where rich people can go to the head of the queue and that'll clear the backlog. They say, no, that's not what we want, and that's not how it would work. It would just beggar the public side. But I don't think there's anyone who's saying that we that we can get by without private providers 
they themselves are saying we yeah. need more supply. The problem yeah. is supply. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have PSWs. We don't have enough buildings. We don't have enough facilities. We don't have enough MRI machines, whatever it is. We have a big demand and a limited supply. And the management and creation of that supply, it doesn't follow that the government are necessarily the only game in town for that, even though they may be the only payer. Well, exactly. That's what we're talking about right. is maintaining the single payer hey, yeah. system. Uh, Bill, are, are people focused on that? I don't think I, I think they're being very confused uh, by the uh, issue. I think you and you and David uh, clearly enunciated it uh, just now, but I don't think it's that clear to many people it's because of these one-liners that are that are being uh, used by uh, by the parties and and those who are uh, are firmly against uh, any any change in our uh, system who want. Uh, uh, well, they want change, but they they want to they want to keep a, a system where everything is provided by by government, and I think that really concerns uh, what we're hearing from our members is we don't have the confidence that government does a good job uh, in trying to offer these, and maybe the private uh, enterprise could do a better job in some some areas. And I also don't think that people understand we already have. We already, a, yeah, we already have it. I mean, the, the one place where there is kind of two-tiered for some things, British Columbia. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but we don't really have that here. And, I mean, I think you can say there's much to criticize in uh, with the Ford Conservatives over how they've handled health care, though I think the health minister has done a pretty good job aside, well, if you can go aside to the nursing home situation, but they haven't tried to bring in privatized health care, and I don't think anybody who wants to stay in office would do that. No, I don't think they've defunded no. it necessarily either. No, they haven't. They've increased the funding. Have Have they organized things the right way? Probably not. I mean, I, I will be at some point interviewing these experts, and I, there's this Ontario health teams, right, that are supposed to be completely reorganizing. Well, how far are we with that? And there are some things, I've talked about this many times, and maybe it's changed now. My experience with home care was a year ago. They changed the name. Yeah. Nothing changed. Yeah. So. No, it hasn't changed. We're 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 getting reports from our members that things are even worse than yeah. they were a year ago. When, in terms of getting yeah. appropriate home care, yeah. it's always cheaper to rebrand than to reform. Right, uh, and <laughs> easier. Not to and mention easier. easier. Yeah. Re- that's a that's a good slogan. <laughs> let's yeah. uh, let's take a call from Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Hello. Good afternoon, Libby and panel. I have Hello. one question. That is why is more focus not put on the environment by the candidate since it's starting to really devastate our world and also greatly affecting the economy as well? Uh, my answer would be because uh, for most people, it's not the top of mind. I mean, we have a Green Party, but honestly, I don't think that's at the very top for most people. David, you're Thank shaking you your head. No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm uh, not saying whether your caller, I mean, Barry, you could argue it ought to be. Yeah. But but I'm not it, addressing that. No, exactly. But it's not. It doesn't show up near the top on anything. Maybe five years from now, when things get even worse, maybe people will be thinking about it. We hope so, because we're in yeah. for a rough ride. Something well, done. Barry, thanks for your call. Well, and we see it, for instance, in British Columbia with all the wildfires. It's more top of mind there. Yep. But here, mm, I don't know. 
So what else are you going to be looking for, Peter, just in terms of the way the leaders look? I mean, you know, we have this idea for this knockout punch thing. It it happens very rarely. Yeah. I I mean, uh, the the knockout punch came when... um, you know, Ford was handling the pandemic, and he had to sort of apologize and step back and sort of, you know, when, when things got sort of disastrous at, at one point. That, that if the knockout punch was going to come, it would have come then. He, he has since survived that. Um, he's sort of, like, now avoiding any kind of controversy, any kind of, like, until the election, he'll lay low and... Um, and, and I think that's all he needs to do to, to walk back into office. So I, I think he sort of, the knockout blow came early. It's not going to be struck by Andrea Horvath or uh, Stephen Del Duca. They're not that type of politician. And, you know, he's going to be coached enough to avoid, you know, falling into pitfalls where, where he could expose himself. But, you know, he survived the big blow uh, during the pandemic, and, and it, it's, it's a pretty straight path forward for him now. Well, you know, David, he for, is going to be the first one he's allowed to bring notes, uh, which I think sort of underscores uh, the one thing where I really would criticize him. He sometimes does not seem briefed to me. It's true. But he's also responsible for a wide range yeah. of topics. I, I want to just point out, and I'm sorry to bring this in, but I'm a, an ex-ad man. I can't resist. He's the only candidate with a jingle. He's actually got a jingle, and their slogan of get it done, Doug will get it done when the word it can mean whatever the topic is. Get it done, get roads done. And I think it actually captures, I'm not making a point of endorsing him as much as reflecting on whether they've read the tea leaves properly, that there's this kind of a take charge execution, maybe not so much philosophy, maybe not so much ideology, but kind of a we can buckle down and get the essential tasks done. And when you're in the lead like he is, and that's your position, and you've got it encapsulated in that slogan, it's very, very tough to defeat him in a debate. He's going to be a competent voice for his position, I, I'm predicting, but I think he's got the arguments figured out. And with Peter there, I, I think it's going to be very hard for them to land a knockout uh, blow. Yeah, well, it's it's hard for anybody. anybody yeah. uh, Peter, do you think having him, you know, there going through notes, is that going to make him look good, bad, or uh, neutral? Yeah, but I, I don't think anyone has ever suspected him of being overly briefed on, on these. So, <laughs> like, it, it, it's a sort of confirmation that, that he needs votes, but but he's not the type. Of, he's he's more of a retail politician. He's he's not the sort of uh, you know high-minded politician. No one no one thinks of them. So I I don't think the notes are going to be a, a huge issue. Like he's you know his get her done. You know, like anyone who's from a small town knows that expression. And uh, you know he's he's speaking to those people, and he's not at all worried what. Uh, you know what what their reaction will be to him having notes you know i've i've got to say that jingle is getting to be a bit of an earworm <laughs> and it's annoying me yeah, I know. bill bill what you... those ad men right david yeah yeah somebody did a good job david uh, and did you get tired of 967 11 11 but the point that's the not point where i get making. my pizza no exactly well yeah. okay but you <laughs> uh, Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the point that you're both uh, making in terms of 
there's not going to be much new that comes out of this debate tonight. That's why CARP is focusing on after the election. Well, that's why CARP is telling our members in Ontario, get out and talk to the candidates, make sure they understand what the CARP 5 are, what we're looking for, what you're looking for as, uh, as older Ontarians, and make sure they're aware, because uh, we're really going to have to push for what we want after the election happens, and we want to make sure each of the elected uh, candidates goes in understanding that CARP is a force, the CARP 5 are important and we want to see uh, change it's almost as as if we're kind of ignoring the leaders in in this case realizing that uh, uh, what's going to happen there is probably fairly obvious at this time and the real work is going to come after the election we have a, a few minutes left what what would you like to really get people to focus in on well, I, from my point of view, just to amplify what Bill said, one of the other important things about the CARP-5, because we try to be very concrete and very specific, because to say, let's fix health care is a... Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that insight. You know. so, but we're trying to get markers laid down. So if I go to a meeting and all candidates meet, and I have a candidate to say, I endorse the CARP-5, it includes specific promises of action. Going forward, as Bill said, we are going to come back to the CARP-5 and we're going to say, okay, a year ago in the height of the campaign, when you were begging for votes, you publicly said you were going to do this. Where is it? And this is the kind of accountability that um, we're trying to impose on this topic. And when I look at these um, 10 great ideas, and I see that the lead, lead author was the Deputy Minister of Health from 2014 to 2018, well, what were you doing then? You know, and he's a far bigger expert on it than I am. And I bow to his wisdom, tremendously talented, capable, experienced man. But you ran the box for five years, four years. Why and gave you, us more bureaucracy. Why didn't we have digital specialist consultations back then? The technology existed. Why didn't we have transitional we were mini hospitals then? So now all of a sudden, let's fix it. So, well, it, I, I, I had to laugh with one of it about the digital consultations. Uh, uh, my GP wants me to see a certain kind of specialist. They immediately got back to me. And they scheduled a, a phone call, like, for yeah. three months from now, just laughing, yeah, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, but, oh, thank goodness, nothing urgent. No, thank but, God, uh, yeah. but really, the, this is, um, yeah. the, those consultations are uh, a lot more available now that there's a billing code for them. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Pay for it and you'll get it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bill, what would you like to leave us with on the election? Uh, though I'm sure we're, we'll be talking about it next week, too. Well, we're, we're for tonight, we're urging our CARP members to watch the debate, uh, debate learn from it uh, what you can about what the parties are thinking, and then get to your local candidates and tell them what you really want to have uh, happen uh, when they're elected. Peter, last word to you. Uh, I think, um, you know, tonight's debate is a, you know, three pretty low wattage uh, politicians aren't very substantial. I, you know, neither of them is going to, you know, make any uh, headway against Ford. I don't think. Um, so, in the end, uh, it it may not be an exercise in futility, but uh, I just don't see much coming out of it. 
Okay. All right. I hope it's a little more interesting than that. It's, uh, it's my evening. Uh, thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Peter Mugridge, and Bill Van Gorder. Thank you, Thanks, Libby. Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. We are taking a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about those ridiculous lineups and bottlenecks at the airport just as travel season is gearing up. How annoying. We'll drill down on that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.